Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You're all about your San Francisco 49ers. And this is where you need to be for news, analysis, and, and, and more. And more. Welcome to the 415, hosted by Evan Gidding and Mark Grandy. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back into the 415ers three times a week on the Odyssey Sports Podcast Network with 95.7 The Game. Mark Grandy, Evan Giddings with you as always. Mark, my man, how are you? I'm doing all right, Evan. Uh, a tough uh, couple of last couple of days for the football world, of course. I know we'll talk about it in a little bit. Damar Hamlin, thoughts go out to him trying to you know push forward and, and talk about what's coming up for the 49ers, but it's kind of putting and rightly so, uh, a haze over the entire football world right now, what happened to him on Monday Night Football. Uh, but other than that, uh, good to be back with you once again, Evan. Looking forward to another fun, fun episode of the 415ers. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, right? Because the entire weekend, and really the last, I would say, week, building off of Christmas to the new year, it's all good times. This weekend had provided some really exciting football games, uh, some very entertaining football games. Of course, the Niners and the Raiders being perhaps the best of the bunch. And then it is supposed to eventually culminate on Monday Night Football with a matchup that has large AFC playoff implications. Two of the best teams, arguably the hottest team in the AFC in the Bengals, and then a team bidding for the one seed in the Buffalo Bills at Buffalo. And, you know, about midway, a little more than midway through the first quarter, uh, unfortunately, DeMar Hamlin lays a tackle on T. Higgins and everyone who did not see what happened, just, you know, go back and watch it kind of experience for yourself. That's sort of what everyone was going through who watched it in the moment. I myself, Mark, did not have a chance to watch it live. I was listening on radio. So I'm curious what your first reaction was when you saw exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, I was watching live. Uh, I, I will first say, if, if this is something that makes you uncomfortable, I would not go back and watch it. It's not gruesome in that you can, you know, like other sports injuries where you could see a, 
a you know a, a leg snap and you see a broken bone it's not visually gruesome like that but it is still difficult to watch so if you don't enjoy those kinds of things i would suggest try to stay away from the video as best you could but essentially as you mentioned he tries to make a tackle and does make a tackle on t higgins and it seemed like a pretty normal football play uh he gets hit in the chest uh which happens all the time on a football field and he immediately gets up and he seems fine and then you can kind of see his legs shake and he falls down backwards straight on his back, and he's he's down for a while. Immediately, everyone thinks a head injury because that's just what we've been programmed to think of on the football field, especially when you kind of see those wobbly legs. Uh, he was down for a while. Eventually, those, those of us watching on ESPN and ABC on Monday Night Football, Joe Buck says they're performing CPR on Hamlin down on the field. And at that moment, you, you already kind of knew something was wrong, at least more so than than usual. And I'm not trying to make light of, of other head injuries, but this seemed a, like a bigger deal than that. And then when Joe Buck breaks that news that they're performing literally CPR on a player on the football field, right around midfield on Monday night football in front of a national audience, uh, my heart just sank. And it was it was hard for me one to turn away from ESPN's coverage the rest of the night. And I, I want to applaud them. I, th I think they did a fantastic job. The broadcast crew, Susie Kolber, Booger McFarland, Adam Schefter back in the studio, Lisa Salters on the sidelines, doing a great job getting the story after the fact, Scott Van Pelt, Lisa Salters joined them as well. Ryan Clark was incredibly emotional. Um, it was hard for me to turn away Evan. And it's been hard for me to, to kind of focus, we're recording this a day later on Tuesday evening. Uh, it's it's kind of been a, a slog of a day because I've just been thinking about what what we all witnessed. And the latest update is that he's, as we have here on Thursday evening, or Tuesday evening, excuse me, is that he's still in critical condition. He was resuscitated twice, once on the field and once at, uh, at the hospital in Cincinnati. It is... Uh, an incredibly unique and difficult situation and just thoughts and good vibes and prayers to DeMar Hamlin and the entire Hamlin family, because what they're going through is unimaginable. I just, I can't even begin to try to put myself in their shoes right now. I mean, I was, I was shaken up enough just watching from thousands of miles away, not really knowing who DeMar Hamlin is. So I can't imagine what people close to him are feeling. Yeah, we definitely want to send our, our thoughts and prayers to him and those around him. Uh, the information that you relayed, Mark, from his uncle, uh, Dorian Glenn. So that's where that info comes from about him still needing to be sedated after having been resuscitated twice. Uh, DeMar Hamlin is a 24-year-old secondary member of the Buffalo Bills. And look, all of this stuff is is unfortunately a part of the game of football. That's something that, that cannot be changed. But in my opinion, Mark, and... Look, I was only listening on radio, so I was listening to the Westwood One call, Kevin Harlan and, and Kurt Warner, um, and then I went back and and watched, you know, kind of the ESPN coverage from where it was picked up. About I would say fifteen to twenty minutes before they officially, you know, postponed mm -hmm. the game or said they were not going to continue the game. So I kind of was airdropped in from having listened to that the play and then the immediate aftermath because, understandably, the radio crew is kind of pushing all these commercial breaks down the line and they're trying to 
not do play-by-play of a guy who is getting CPR on, on the football field. But what stood out to me, Mark, and I think the conversation that a lot of people are having is the coverage surrounding DeMar Hamlin. And I don't want to belittle him in this in this overall picture, but and as it stands, I believe the latest update that we saw here on Tuesday night was that he was formerly on 100% oxygen at the hospital. He's been moved to 50% oxygen from a machine, so at least trending in a positive direction from that sense, being able to you know, breathe more so on his own, but the coverage on television and even to some extent on radio, to me, screamed something that I didn't really have a good grip on until this moment. And I wish it didn't happen, obviously, but for a game that is as physical and violent as football is, many people I've heard describe each play as a miniature car crash. And if you want to experience what it's like to play football in the NFL, go outside and run into your garage door 70 straight times, leading with your head. So with that in mind, it was a bit appalling to me the lack of ability from these big networks, ESPN, even Westwood One to some extent, knowing what to do how to react to a situation like this because there is so much kind of keep it moving of a mentality around these injuries, around these lines. And I know ESPN analysts today are much more prepared, but it was it was honestly a bit cringy, Mark, listening to you know some of the some of the crews talking about this game immediately because it just felt like they were I mean, no one's ever prepared for anything like this, but for a game that is our modern day form of the gladiator games to not have even, you know, and and like a playbook of what to run in these sort of situations. And, and sure they have happened before, you know, an ambulance has been brought on the field before a player's had to be resuscitated before given CPR happens very seldom, but it has happened in the NFL before. And I'm sure it's happened maybe on practice fields, things away from the game, but it was, it was a bit appalling to me to kind of watch these, you know, analysts tap dance around the fact this guy and his life was in the balance and there seemed to be less of a, you know, focus on, I guess, getting things right. And if needing to maybe even throwing to regular programming and saying, Hey guys, we are not equipped to handle this situation rather than, you know, kind of mumbling through it all and making me as, as a viewer, maybe even more, you know, shocked, maybe even more scared because, DeMar Hamlin is clearly, you know, fighting for his life at this point, And that much is able to be sensed, but I was not given any form of, I guess, security from what I was watching on television. I hear you. I, I think I would, I would fire back in the sense that these were people who were put into an impossibly difficult situation because of, as you mentioned, the uniqueness, you know, there have been similar things. I know there was, uh, a moment in hockey where what, what presumably happened to DeMar Hamlin happened to a hockey player who took a puck to the chest at, at just the right moment of a heartbeat or the wrong moment of a heartbeat. And it caused, you know, this issue, it caused heart failure and it needed to be resuscitated. Uh, like things like this have happened in sports before, but it's been such a long time and it hasn't, necessarily happened on this 
platform uh, before. I, I do understand where you're coming from. However, I would say this was an impossible situation. And the fact that it took the NFL over an hour to officially postpone the game uh, put these people, you know, the the talking heads, the analysts, the, the studio hosts, everyone uh, in an impossible situation because they were tasked with trying to update a situation over an hour long span that essentially had no update other than the fact that he was taken off the field in an ambulance and was rushed to the nearest hospital. Uh, I don't know how you are supposed to, to do that when you literally have no new information. Um, I don't know. I, I did personally didn't feel the way you felt. I do. I can understand that feeling. You're a viewer. You, you want to, I don't know, hear something positive and, and encouraging and, and hear someone tell you, hey, it's going to be all right. But I think in that moment, no one knew. I mean, for all they knew, when when DeMar Hamlin got into the back of that ambulance, the worst news could have been, you know, coming moments later. I, I don't know. I I understand what you're saying, but I also feel that it was just simply an impossible situation. And from my perspective, I, I thought they they handled it relatively well and they, they covered it with with relative class and dignity. Um, but maybe we'll look back on it in the future if something similar happens and, and we we see them handle the situation better. I'm not so sure. But uh, uh, overall, it, I, I thought they, they did what they could with, with what is just an, an incredibly unfortunate situation. No, that, that's fair. Look, and putting yourself in their shoes, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I would have been able to do anything better. And it, maybe it's it's not so much on the analysts as it is on those giving them information. And if we're talking about. It's on the NFL. I mean, I mean, the first instinct for the NFL was, okay, warm up Joe Burrow five minutes. We'll start playing again. What? (laughs) They're giving him CPR on the field and you're telling the players to start warming up. And then, and then you have to wait a whole hour before you officially say, yeah, this isn't happening. By the way, it was never going to happen because the players and the coaches, rightly so, were refusing to play. Like, are you kidding me, NFL? Your first instinct was say, take five guys, and then we'll go again. It's utterly ridiculous. Well, but that's the way it's always been. Like, so, again, if, like, there are so many stories shared today throughout different outlets and, you know, one of our own, uh, Lorenzo Neal, talking about his teammate literally being shot in the middle of the season and having to just put his head down and power through. I know ESPN's Dominic Foxworth has told a story about an experience in college when he went to Maryland where a player was paralyzed during practice, and he said basically the team just moved the practice down 20 yards. Like, that's that's to me the the... I guess the crux of the of the itch of the issue with the NFL is that there's there is such a, an acceptance of violence, and this is a very unique situation. But I, I just that acceptance to me is echoed by those talking about the game, and we're not expecting when we watch football when we talk about oh we're going to go to war we're going to. You know, we're going to ride or die with this guy. Well, they're not literally meaning like, you know, die. But that's what 
almost happened on that field last night. And Damar Hamlin is still fighting for his life. I just felt like they're the message that I I felt, and whether it's because of what the NFL didn't do immediately, because of what the information that ESPN was giving to its analysts lacked, or the you know kind of lost in translation message that that I was receiving as a viewer on television, I, I don't know where it, it it got lost, but to me there was it it felt like a, a lack of just a lack of understanding. I mean, you, you said it yourself. The moment that you saw DeMar Hamlin hit the ground immediately, something's wrong. I mean, that does not happen on a normal basis. And for the first five minutes, the first 10 minutes, the first 20 minutes being more focused on how to get back to the game, how to restore balance, how to restore, you know, a, a sense of, security for your viewer to me that again i i just don't know if that's the message like i i could hear through the radio through the play-by-play there was a sense of panic from kurt warner for another football player down on the ground that's that's the kind of message that i felt like prepared me for what i was going to then watch as opposed to you know what it sounds like people watched and then heard trying to sugarcoat a bit what just happened yeah, no, I I understand what you're saying. And I feel like that's where it's valuable to have the perspective of former players. Kurt Warner, like you're talking about on national radio, Troy Aikman, who was on the call, you know, on television, Booger McFarland, who was back in the studio, Ryan Clark, who was on with Scott Van Pelt on ESPN's coverage after the fact, after the game officially got postponed. Um you could you can hear and feel the emotion because, uh, I mean, people like you and I and, and everyone else who hasn't played football at a high level uh, can't can't possibly understand what it's like. I mean, you, you talk to any even college football player, but especially in, an NFL player, uh, they all have a story about a horrific injury, either to themselves or to a teammate or to someone that was close to them. Like literally all of them do. It's the nature of this game. It's unfortunate but it's just the way that the game is. Uh, they all have an experience not like DeMar Hamlin, but a lot more like DeMar Hamlin than any of us. So you can you can feel their emotion. And I, I agree with you, uh, those kinds of, of um, I don't know, analysis, reactions from those former players, including Kurt Warner on Westwood One, who I didn't hear, but, but I, I trust what you're saying. Uh, incredibly emotional and you can feel as you're saying the fact that they knew something was wrong like immediately um and i think you know a situation like this while it is based on what we know what the science is saying what the doctors are telling us a relative chance encounter this is something that happens just because of a, a, a hit to the chest at the right exact millisecond in the middle of a heartbeat that causes this to happen it's it's a chance encounter. It has actually really not a lot to do with the danger of football. Like it, it's just a, a chance thing that happened. Um, but them being so, I don't know, immediately troubled by it, perhaps in the future makes responses to to this sort of thing better. Yeah. Well, no, we'll we'll see. Uh those are just our our thoughts and 
um, you know, perspective on the situation, primarily the coverage in the immediate aftermath. I think after everything was sorted out and we figured out how difficult and how or how unique and how um, you know dangerous the situation was, everything began to change. Uh, but our thoughts and prayers are yes. out to Demar Hamlin and his family. Uh, hopefully, he's able to pull through in Cincinnati. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We will power on here on the 415ers podcast, uh, brought to you by the Odyssey Sports Podcast Network, three times a week with 95.7 The Game. Evan Giddings, Mark Grandy, please feel free to download, rate, and subscribe. All right, let's get to uh, some 49ers content, Mark. There was, you know, obviously a lot of great storylines that came out of this week. We talked about the emergence and the mainstay of Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk, and Brock Purdy. Well, Brock Purdy this week, as some degenerates may or may not have been paying attention to, <laughs> have had his offensive rookie of the year odds soar all the way up to, I believe, Mark, third uh, when it comes, or third favorite, I should say, in the offensive rookie of the year award uh, betting market. I I saw plus 600 yesterday. Mark was saying it's down to plus 500. So people are clearly hopping on the Brock Purdy train. He still trails uh, the two others, which are Kenneth Walker, the third running back for the Seattle Seahawks, as well as Garrett Wilson, the wide receiver for the New York Jets. Mark, does Brock Purdy deserve to win offensive rookie of the year? I feel like that's a loaded question, Evan. I don't know. Uh, to your point, the odds are going crazy. The highest I see, the tallest odds are on FanDuel, plus 500. I see plus 350 on Caesars, 450 oh on BetMGM. So there's a lot of money coming in on Brock Purdy. Uh, I guess you can understand why, because he's had an incredible month. Um, but I think that's where this conversation ends for me, Evan. Unfortunately, I, I think you need to play at least double-digit games to be considered for these kinds of individual full-season awards. Um, Brock Purdy has been phenomenal. He's been a godsend for the 49ers. There's no doubt about that. I am not debating that. Uh, but the fact that he's only played in five games, I guess he, he's played in a couple more in, in mop-up duty at, at certain points, really meaningful snaps in five games, only started four games. I think for me, just kind of by default, Evan, that takes him out of the running for this Offensive Rookie of the Year award. He's going to get votes, certainly, because he's leading the hottest team in football right now. And he probably deserves some votes, but I would probably defer to a full season from, you know, Kenneth Walker, a full season from Garrett Wilson, a relatively full season from Chris Olave, though he's he's fallen off a little bit recently. Uh, I'm not so sure that Brock Purdy has been so incredibly transcendent over a month's span that that pushes him over uh, these guys who have been pretty good for an entire season in their rookie year. I, I think I think that's kind of where I'm at. I'm largely with you, and I'm going to name the last eight winners just to kind of put into perspective the sort of names that Brock Purdy would be with. 
2021, Jamar Chase. It's pretty good. 2020, Justin Herbert. Also pretty good. 2019, Kyler Murray. Uh, jury's out. 2018, <laughs> Saquon Barley. He is he is good. 2017, Alvin Kamara. And 2016, Dak Prescott. Uh, 2015, Todd Gurley. 2014, Odell Beckham Jr. Those would be the names that Brock Purdy would have his own etched in with. And look, I understand... Garrett Wilson is going to win this award. Kenneth Walker III is probably going to come in second with what he's done in Seattle, even though he's also missed some games. I think Garrett, Garrett Wilson's missed some games too, but they have played double-digit games. They've played close to 14 games or will have by the end of this season. But when it comes down to the offensive rookie of the year, to me, when I see all those names, sure, I see pro bowlers, I see all pros, but I see guys that provide immediate value to their franchise, to their club, and a form of legitimacy and stability that other players around the roster do not add. That, to me, screams Brock Purdy more than the other two guys ahead of him. I know he doesn't have the sample size at this point with games played, but when I think of a player that is providing the most value right now and maybe even has stabilized a team's postseason potential Super Bowl chances. Brock Purdy absolutely deserves to be in the conversation, and I believe he may not come in first place, but he should get some first-place votes because by the end of the season, if you're looking at a 6-0 and record, you know, 10-plus touchdowns, the numbers are what they are, but you're talking about a San Francisco team that in the storyline of the season was – on its way out, when Trey Lance got hurt, Jimmy Garoppolo steps in. When Jimmy Garoppolo gets hurt, San Francisco's postseason chances of success take a hit. Brock Purdy not only alleviates those issues, but elevates the 49ers' chances to go deep into the postseason, as we have talked about over the course of this podcast the last couple of weeks. In my opinion, that means that Brock Purdy, though his name is not as great as those last eight winners that we talked about, the qualities of an AP Offensive Rookie of the Year list, in a lot of cases, demand that Brock Purdy should be in the same conversation. I hear you, and I understand what you're saying. I, I just think the body of work uh, isn't quite enough. Now, let's say say this was a regular season and postseason award, which, of course, it isn't. But say it was, and voters took both into account. As, as it stands right now, they only are basing their vote off of what they saw in the regular season. If Brock Purdy has a, a pretty good six-game run here at the end of the regular season, leads his team to a win in all six, uh, five starts and then, you know, one in relief of Jimmy Garoppolo, where he played three plus quarters and led his team to all the points that they scored on offense. Uh, and then he he played three good postseason games, maybe four good postseason games, whatever the number is. I think then that would be enough to convince me and to earn my vote. But I think the way it's going right now it would be unfair to the guys that that you mentioned, Kenneth Walker, the running back uh, from Seattle, Garrett Wilson, the wide receiver uh, from the Jets. Um, I will say I think it's convenient that you ended at 2014 because if you go back to the 2013 Offensive Rookie of the Year, you're left with Eddie Lacy, who doesn't quite fit the bill with some of the more recent winners. 
uh, Eddie Lacy, the, the Packers running back from back in the day, obviously had a good rookie year, but but kind of fell off after that. Um, but I I understand what you're saying. I, I'm just I think it's for me, it's less about what Brock Purdy has done, because what he has done is incredible. It's more so that I would feel like I wasn't being fair to what Kenneth Walker or Garrett Wilson accomplished if I didn't vote for one of those two guys, because they, relatively speaking, at least compared to Brock Purdy, uh, did it for longer. Now, maybe that's not fair to Brock Purdy either, because it's not like it was his fault that he didn't play earlier. It's just the way things go when you're a seventh-round rookie quarterback. You need the opportunity, You're, you're even if you're incredible in camp, you're not going to win the starting job as a seventh round rookie quarterback. So it's not against Brock Purdy. I think it's more so just how I would feel if I didn't vote for one of those other two guys who have been doing it all year. Yeah, that's true. I just think it's interesting. Also, like the MVP award, as we talked about, is basically a quarterback award. Uh, yeah. And the rookie of the year is interesting. Like one of the few awards where you will see a lot of position players, as we listed, be able to to capture the award and it won't matter what position they play. Um, also the reason I didn't bring Eddie Lacy into it was because I did, I didn't want to stack up Brock Purdy's name with the rest of those big boys and say, Hey, this is, this is what it could be. What about uh, uh, Sam Bradford back in 2010, winning the offensive rookie of the year? Uh, that one actually didn't surprise me too much at the time, <laughs> but the amount of money that he got paid did. And, you know, basically wrecked the entire rookie quarterback contract system. Regardless, let's move on to an award that I do think demands some examination and has, I think, some more legitimacy to it, Mark, which is Kyle Shanahan deserving mm. to win Coach of the Year. Have you come around to him being your number one candidate at this point? I think so. I, I think this award is his. And if you're one who needs to look at the the Vegas odds and and how they are handicapping this right now. Uh, he's second behind Nick Sirianni of the Eagles. Uh, Sirianni, a, a slight favorite. Shanahan at, at plus two hundred, which means if if you were to bet a hundred bucks, you would win two hundred. So two to one odds for Shanahan right now. But those odds are getting slimmer by the day. He's closing on Nick Sirianni, at least according to Vegas. Um, I almost think, Evan, and, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, that regardless of what happens in Week 18, if the Niners are the one seed or the two seed, maybe if they fall to the three seed, that changes things. But if they're the one or the two, they don't need to pass Philadelphia. If they just beat the Cardinals in Week 18, Evan, uh, and they finish on an 11-game win streak with half of those wins basically coming with a seventh round rookie quarterback and you're the hottest team in football going into the postseason, and you have as good of a chance as any to win the Super Bowl. How do you not give it to the guy who is coaching up that seventh round rookie quarterback? I, I just, there will be votes for both of those guys for Sirianni and Shanahan and, and some others sprinkled in as well. But how can you not vote for Kyle Shanahan who is doing what he's doing leading this team to one of their best regular seasons in recent memory with a seventh round rookie quarterback. And you talk a lot about, you know, coaching, you, you can see it come through in the postseason. coaching also comes through when you're being led by our rookie quarterback and Shanahan is coaching his ass off right now. I don't see how you couldn't give it to him. Well, I'll tell you why Mark. Now uh -oh. I, 
<laughs> I just noticed this trend as we were kind of going through the list. We're going through rookies of the years. We're going through head coaches of the year. I did not realize that three of the last five head coaches to be bestowed this award were in their first season with their team. And what that tells to me, and you kind of enlighten me, Mark, is the fact that this award generally goes to a franchise or to a, to a team that has relatively low expectations. Yep. Now, if you want to make the argument that the Niners were not expected to be in this position, I'll certainly grant you that. And a lot of it is un unfortunate due to injury. But the 49ers were expected to compete for the NFC West. They were expected to be a postseason team. I do not know if you could say the same as definitively just because of the division they play in as the Philadelphia Eagles. Last year, the Cowboys absolutely dominated that division. The Eagles snuck in as a nine-win team. And this year, they have completely ran away with things. Well, I guess not to the point that they could lose this weekend and fall to the five seed. But you know what I'm saying? Like They already have 13 wins on their ledger. They're a team that is led by a second-year head coach, so a pretty young one. They have a young, upstart quarterback that has taken the next step in his career in Jalen Hurts. They have made great moves in the offseason, you know, maybe spearheaded by the A.J. Brown deal. Uh, they have a great team around for Sirianni to, to coach up. And it just, the award to me is one that, yes, Kyle Shanahan has, with now his third starting quarterback, gotten his team better. But to me, where Kyle Shanahan's marquee move lies is in kind of the executive chair, which would be trading for Christian McCaffrey. I don't know if I can give him that as head coach. Now, he has gotten the most out of his offense since acquiring Christian McCaffrey. They haven't lost a game when he starts. But to me, it's a slight edge still to Sirianni. I think that's why the betting market would reflect that. And I expect at the end of the year, Sirianni will be head coach of the year. It might be one and one A. It might be one and two. But I think, unfortunately, Kyle Shanahan falls short. You're absolutely right that Coach of the Year has become an expectations award. Generally, it goes to the team that wasn't expected to do much at the start of the year and that they exceeded expectations. Essentially, uh, it's uh, who, which team uh, you know, won the most games above their expected win total. That's essentially what this award is. And through what, 14 weeks, it was the Philadelphia Eagles because they had only lost one game all yeah. year. Uh, but they've lost two in a row now. And I know part of that is because of an injury to their quarterback. But Sirianni's biggest competition for coach of the year, guess what, is a guy who lost not one, but two starting quarterbacks and hasn't missed a beat. They've won nine straight games now. They're a win away against a, a Cardinals team who's already waving the white flag on 2023 uh, from winning 10 in a row, six of which with a backup a rookie seventh round quarterback. I mean, this is unprecedented things that the Niners are doing. And I'm not saying Kyle Shanahan deserves all of the credit for these wins. I mean, D'Amico Ryans deserves a ton of credit. Christian McCaffrey deserves a ton of credit. Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, the list goes on. But Brock Purdy does not do this without great leadership from his head coach. Um, and I think Kyle Shanahan is deserving of that. And I, I, I guess there's a couple of questions to sort through. One, would I vote for Kyle Shanahan as coach of the year? Yes, I would. Would I predict that he's going to win it? 
I'm not so sure because like we're talking about, it is an expectations award. And I'm not so sure if there are enough voters nationwide, Evan, who are, I don't know, heady enough to realize or not to realize, but to internalize that the 49ers expectations changed midseason. You cannot think about the Niners in the preseason and vote based on that. You have to think about the 49ers. What you thought the second that Jimmy Garoppolo left the game? What did you think in that moment? You thought the season was over, and it's not over. They have a chance to win the Super Bowl, and that is why Kyle Shanahan deserves Coach of the Year. I, I see what you're saying, and I do think that there will be some recency bias to his side, but I'm just looking at it from the entire picture and the entire body of work. Philly has faltered in their last few games, last couple of games. If they lose this week, they fall to the five or, you know, San Francisco gets the one. I, I honestly do think that whoever gets the one seed at this point in the NFC is going to have the head coach of the year. If you tell me Kyle Shanahan deserves it, I hear you. If you tell me Nick Sirianni deserves it, I believe you. I guess I will just, I would pick Sirianni at this point and then next week reserve the right to switch that pick to Kyle Shanahan. That's how close of a race I think mm. it is. Boo, pick one. Well, I told you I'm picking Sirianni right now. <laughs> well, yeah, you reserve the right to change it, though. That's kind of unfair. But that's how close the race is. Like I, We're talking about two potential 13-win <laughs> teams here. We're talking about two potential Super Bowl contenders. We're talking about two teams that have been pegged from about, I would say, week eight as being the NFC Conference title matchup. Like, those are the two teams. So, I mean, I, I sure I'm splitting hairs here, but Sirianni is my pick. No love for Brian Dable from Evan, huh? He's done all right. What about uh, what about Peterson down in Jacksonville? What if they beat the Titans and win their division in his first year after they were the biggest dumpster fire in the league last year? I would throw I would throw Brandon Staley in his face. The Los Angeles Chargers. <laughs> What about no, Dan I, Campbell? What if they honestly, beat the Packers and make the playoffs? Let's be honest. I mean, it's got it's Sean McDermott or Andy Reid. Like those are the two best coaches in football, in my opinion. Okay, so this is the Four One Fivers podcast. Download it, rate it, subscribe it. We appreciate it. Five stars. Evan Giddings, Mark Grandy. Uh, we get into these you know heated debates all the time, but we do have a couple of things that we need to kind of lay out, Mark, and that is the playoff schedule this upcoming weekend because. You know, we're talking about what the Niners could be. They could be the one. They might be the three. That's as far as they can fall. The, the Philadelphia Eagles could maintain the one. They could be the two. They could fall all the way to the five, depending on what happens in their own division. Um, the Vikings have an outside chance to reclaim the two seed. A lot going on this weekend, Mark. And which games, though, are the ones that you will be paying attention to? Because there is kind of a nice uh, setup for 49ers fans if you're talking about games to be invested in watching. As, as well as the one, you know, of course, your own against the Cardinals, uh, but as well as everything else going on in the NFC. Yeah, so the biggest games, obviously, uh, the Eagles game, the Niners game, and the Vikings game. If the Vikings lose, the Niners are guaranteed, at worst, the two seed. And as you mentioned, what's nice for the 49ers is the Vikings play in the early window. If you're watching out on the West Coast, the Vikings and Bears kick off at 10 a.m. Niners don't kick off until 1.25 Pacific Standard Time. So there's a very real possibility that by the time the Niners game kicks off, they will know if they have to win to get the two 
or if whatever happens in their game, they will be at worst the two seed. So that's a positive for the 49ers. It's kind of, uh, I, I guess it's it's nice. It's kind of unfortunate for if you're a huge fan of competitive, uh, you know, disadvantage or, or advantage. You want it to be a level playing field. But what else is really interesting, Evan, is when you're talking about who the Niners might play uh, in the first round of the postseason if they are uh, the the two or the three. And, and by the way, I guess before I move on, I should say that the Eagles game also kicks at 125. So Niners and Eagles will be playing simultaneously. Those two teams will be on a level playing field. Niners won't be able to say, oh, the Eagles won. The one seed's out of reach. Let's rest everyone and, and be happy with the two or, or whatever the case is. But what is interesting is the Packers play on Sunday night. They're playing the Lions. The Lions need help from the Seahawks. The Rams need to beat the Seahawks in order for the Lions to make the playoffs. They also need to win against the Packers. And if you're a Niner fan, maybe worry about Aaron Rodgers potentially. This could be unfortunate because say the Seahawks win uh, on Sunday afternoon. And then that means when the Lions play on Sunday night, the Lions essentially have nothing personally to play for. Even if they beat the Packers, they aren't going to the playoffs. The Seahawks would. Um, and, and maybe that means they don't try as hard to knock off the Packers. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure that's you know in Dan Campbell's blood to ever give up, even if his team isn't going to make the postseason. Uh, but like if it might piss him off more. It might. And, and that's a division rival, a, a team that has – you know, given the the Lions nightmares for as long as anyone can remember. Um, but that's kind of a scheduling quirk that I think is a little unfortunate for the NFL. It probably doesn't affect the 49ers all that much, Evan. It's just, you know, who they're going to play uh, potentially in the first round. Um, but a lot, a lot to look forward to really all day long. 10 o'clock, one game, the Vikings game, one o'clock, Niners and Eagles. And then the evening game on Sunday is the Packers. So there'll be something to watch really all day on Sunday for Niner fans. Yeah, and something to watch for the players too, and and the coaching yeah. staff. Depending on how you want to approach that game, I'm I'm sure Kyle Shanahan has 17 different contingency plans, <laughs> depending on you know what they want to do and what the result or the obtainable result could be. Although at the end of the day, if you're aiming for the one seed, which I'm sure they are, then Philadelphia is really the only team you would want to pay attention to, but you can't. So maybe. You know, that doesn't affect the approach as much. I do think it will be nice to know whether or not you have the two seed by the time you kick off. And I'm sure there will be people paying attention to that throughout the day. As fans, it's a reason really to be locked in, you know, the NFL Sunday all day. And I think like week 18 always has playoff implications, but for a team that has locked in, you know, at least two home games, we we assume, we're assuming, of course, they beat Arizona. It It is interesting that, like, I, I can't remember, Mark, if, if there are too many last weeks of football where there are this many um, implications on the line for a top seed. Like, generally, the one seed has sort of established itself. I think yeah. it's a little bit different in recent years because now only one buy is available as opposed to there being two. Uh, before the the playoff switch and the addition of of that seventh team, but if you're the 49ers right now, all you can do is feel good about what you've done. I mean, you you're you're trying to work hard this week. You're trying to get your practice reps in. You're approaching it just like any other football game. I think last week against Las Vegas told you, of course, you can't 
overlook any opponent, but you get to come home. You get your last home game at Levi's Stadium, knowing you get at least your first home game in the postseason at Levi's Stadium. So you get a chance to build kind of a, a playoff rhythm, so to speak, of what how you want to lay out your week. Uh, but if you're the 49ers, you're kind of sitting pretty no matter what happens across the rest of the league. Yeah, you are. I mean, you control your destiny for the two seed. And, and I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, obviously, you want the one, but you kind of until this week never really thought that it was a possibility because, you know, a couple of weeks ago, the Eagles needed to lose three in a row. You needed to win three in a row to get the one seed. That seemed like the last thing that would ever happen over these past three weeks. But the reality is two weeks down, you still have a shot. So that's that's finally like a real possibility that you can actually start thinking about. But before that, it, it really never was on the table. And if you were to ask Niner fans, and I know we've had this conversation a lot, specifically in relation to the Vikings, but if you were to ask any Niner fan, say rewind five weeks, even just four weeks ago, that they would be with a win in week 18, the two seed in the NFC, everyone would be ecstatic. So, I mean, regardless of what happens with the Eagles game, Brian Dable, head coach of the of the Giants who are playing the Eagles, saying they're not going to rest anyone, even though they're locked into the sixth seed and can't gain or lose anything in terms of playoff positioning by winning or losing. Now, I'll believe that when I see it. Maybe they Yeah, they are you taking everyone. his word for that? Uh, I've learned to never take a head coach's word when he's talking to the media. I mean, they're basically paid to, to lie or at least to deceive in, in some way. Um, I'll believe it when I see it. I think there's a real possibility that he starts everyone. Uh, but you know, maybe they check out by halftime or every, you know, every drive you have one fewer starter in there, something like that. I'm not sure they're going full bore if this was a must win game. Uh, so I'll believe it when I see it there, but regardless for the 49ers, you know, that the two seed is in your control and everyone in the organization outside of the organization would have absolutely done Crazy things for that opportunity just just a month ago. So the Niners have it in front of them. The two seed, you know, it, it guarantees you two home games if you win that first one. Then who knows? Crazy things happen in the football postseason. You might not need the one seed to host the NFC championship game. Uh, you could have three home games in the NFC playoffs if things break your way as the two seed. So we will see. I, I do think the Niners will be perfectly fine with the two seed, and, and that is completely in their control. But We'll see what happens in, in Philadelphia as well on Sunday. Yeah, I, I take Brian Dable's word for it at length. Like, I think that he will start <laughs> his starters. I also don't think that they'll finish the game. Yeah. Like, I, I think we'll see Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. Like, they, they want to get their work, and I don't think they just want to take a week off before the postseason starts. And if you're telling me that you get a look at Philadelphia, who, who needs a win, then they get to kind of, in a way get a slight measuring stick of, of what, you know, a top or playoff like team is going to be. So I think Dable will start his guys. I just think they won't play more than a half. So I think that's how that game ends up. But I do think that's also the reason why the Eagles are 14 point favorites uh, at home. The other I, I question, think the bigger question would be if Jalen Hurts played. I was going to say the same thing. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a bit of a cat and mouse game going on. Maybe Nick Sirianni announces Jalen Hurts as the starter and the Giants are like, all right, well, even if we try to win this game, we're probably not going to anyway. So let's let's rest everyone. But then maybe Nick Sirianni throws out Gardner Minshew. I don't I don't know what, what's going to happen in that game. 
Um, but the good news for the 49ers, of course, you want the one seed. But the good news is you do not need to rely on the Eagles doing anything to lock up that two seed. And that two seed, uh, we've talked about it a lot. It's it's much more valuable than the three. It's probably not going to affect the opponents that you're playing that much. They're probably going to be relatively same quality difficulty. But it means, assuming you win on Wild Card Weekend, which isn't a given, but but assume that you do, you're going to have another home playoff game and potentially two more home playoff games. So it, it's valuable, and the, the Niners have that completely in their own control. Okay, and we're going to get deeper into that on our Friday preview episode of the weekend's game. Week 18, Arizona Cardinals come to Levi's Stadium to take on your San Francisco 49ers. Uh, we'll dive into that on Friday. We're going to get into also, I think, some of the interesting matchups in the AFC because really that's where a lot of the movement is going around. For those of you who are fans of, of the entire NFL, we'll break that down as well. And also get into some of the potential active or inactives for the 49ers. They have some decisions to make this week with Debo Sam. Samuel returning to practice. Elijah Mitchell's IR window is up, so he will be back this week, whether they choose to use them or not. We're talking about which starters are going to play for the New York Giants, which starters are going to play for the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, we're going to get into that on Friday as well, Mark, so I'm looking forward to it. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, a lot going on across the NFL, and, and perhaps on Friday we have uh, another release from the NFL about the 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 Bengals Bills game. I mean, first and foremost, thoughts are with Demar Hamlin and his family. But the fact remains that there is an unplayed game in the AFC right now, and what what's going to go on there? Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how they're going to make it up, considering how late in the season that they are. So so maybe by the Friday episode, we'll we'll have a better idea of that. Uh, but again, first and foremost, thoughts to Demar Hamlin. But certainly, still a lot to talk about as the uh, the NFL gets ready for Week 18. Yeah, we wish Demar Hamlin a hopeful, speedy recovery. Uh, thoughts and prayers go out to his family and everyone that you know was kind of shooken up by that. We hope that uh, everyone else is, you know, restored some of their balance as well. But that'll do it for this episode of the Four One Fivers Podcast. Mark Randy, Evan Giddings, with you as always, coming at you on the Odyssey Sports Podcast Network. We'll talk to you on Friday. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of the middle of your week.